Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to State Library Victoria. My name is Anna Berkey, and I'm the Acting Director of Experience here at the Library. And before we kick off uh, our conversation that is all about the ever-growing presence of more people on this land we call Melbourne, uh, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we stand and the land which we will be talking about this evening. Um, And so to pay my respects to their elders past and present and to the elders of other communities who may be present with us here today. Um, I'd also like to give a warm welcome to Friends of the Library. This is all, the Policy Pitch is always a popular event with our Friends of the Library and with Grattan Institute members. Um, so uh, welcome to you all. It's lovely to have you with us this evening. Uh, I'm really enjoying and looking forward to this conversation about tackling Melbourne's congestion. I first moved here from the medieval city of Edinburgh in 2012 uh, and couldn't believe what a beautiful, busy, growing city it was to see how fast the city of Melbourne was growing. Um, It has changed quite a lot just in those seven years that I've been here, watching people being unable to stand on the footpaths, just watching the inordinate growth of this city um, and the inordinate growth of this library over that period of time as well. You may have noticed, some of you, if you came in through the Swanson Street entrance, uh, that we have finished our major Vision 2020 redevelopment. And so we now have 40% more space and 70% more seats than we had a couple of years ago. Um, So if you've had opportunity to to have a look around, you can see that we've also restored some of our original 1856 buildings. And a part of the catalyst for doing that uh, was to prepare for this large volume of people that need access to our library. We're the fourth busiest library in the world. We get about 2.3 million visits through the door every year. Um, And we are expecting that to continue to grow as the city of Melbourne grows. So it's very important to us to be part of the conversation and the big ideas that are happening and so that we can make really good, conscious, well-formed public debate about the way that we want to go in this city and where we might end up. Uh, We also are about to launch our new entrepreneurship and innovation hub uh, where we're encouraging people to tackle great problems uh, that, and, and to set up businesses from that. So that new service is called Startspace, and that will open here at the library in March. And you can check out startspacehq.com uh, for more information if you have a burning problem you want to solve or a business you want to set up. But for tonight, uh, we are here to uh, um, hear from our illustrious panel, Lauren Walker, Ashley Cormack, Marion Terrell, and our moderator for tonight, Paul Austin. Paul's the editor at Grattan and has worked for many years as a journalist and editor at Fairfax and News Corporations. He's reported from Canberra and the Spring Street Press Gallery and has been deputy editor and opinion editor of The Age and the Australian newspapers. Uh, He won a Quill Award for Best Deadline Reporting, so obviously knows how to work to a tight deadline, and was highly commended in the Walkleys for Best Feature Writing. So I'm going to hand you over to to Paul, so please welcome Paul, Lauren, Ashley and Marion. All yours. Thank you so much, Anna, for that kind introduction. And could I also welcome everyone to this policy pitch event at this wonderful forum, the historic and newly refurbished State Library of Victoria. 
I'd like to join Anna in acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are meeting this evening, and I too pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Ladies and gentlemen, as Anna said, my name is Paul Austin and I'm delighted to be joined on stage tonight by three leaders in their field. From my immediate right, Marion Terrell from the Grattan Institute, Lauren Walker from Veach Lister Consulting, and Ashley Cormack from a little company you may have heard of. Ashley's from Uber. So in turn, we have the Transport and City Analyst, that's Marion, the Transport and Cities Modeler, that's Lauren, and the Transport and Cities Policy Practitioner, that's Ashley. We've got all the bases covered, ladies and gentlemen, and I think we're in for a well-informed discussion. I'll introduce the panel more formally and fulsomely in just a moment, but first let me briefly outline the structure for this evening. Each of the panellists will give a brief presentation of about 10 minutes or so. They'll touch on the international perspective, the situation in Australia, and right down to a very particular proposal about which roads and what prices should be involved in congestion charging here in Melbourne. After those presentations from the panel, I may have one or two questions of my own, but we want to leave at least half an hour for questions from you, our audience members. We've already received a number of uh, good questions that some of you sent in when you registered for tonight's event, and I hope to put some of those to the panel but we certainly encourage uh, live questions from the floor, so please be ready to put your hand up when that time arrives. Okay, it's a big and a sometimes controversial topic, so let's get to it. Our first speaker tonight is Ashley Cormack. Ashley is the Head of Cities Policy for Australia and New Zealand at Uber. She also leads Uber's Future of Cities Policy and Research Program, exploring the role of Uber and transport technology in improving the productivity, livability and sustainability of our cities. Before joining Uber, Ashley worked at Infrastructure Australia, the New South Wales Department of Premier and Cabinet, uh, the Tourism and Transport Forum and Create New South Wales. She knows her stuff, and we're delighted to have us with, have her with us tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Ashley Cormack. Thank you very much, Paul, for that very kind introduction. It's um, wonderful to be here tonight. I love Grattan um, policy events and I've attended many of, in the past, um, but never as a speaker, so this is a big night for me. People are often surprised when I tell them that Uber is supportive of congestion pricing. You think, why would you be supportive of something that is going to make your product more expensive for your customers? But the thing is, congestion is not good for Uber. It's not good for our riders and it's not good for our drivers. It's also not good for our cities. And while congestion is something that is a feature of any sort of urban area and it's not something that you can't completely eliminate, it is something that can be managed and we know how to manage it. It's to price it. 
Tonight, what I want to do is to go through um, a couple of the ways Uber has been involved in congestion charging campaigns in the US, in Seattle and New York, but then I want to sort of talk about the Australian context. And I think before hearing from Marion and Lauren, I really sort of want to set kind of the scene of what are we trying to achieve, like in terms of policy objectives from a congestion charge? Because I think when we know what we're trying to achieve, then choosing a model will sort of fall into place much more easily. I think we need to be aware of some of the unintended um, consequences and outcomes of different models. I think also understanding that policy objective is really important to getting community buy-in to congestion pricing policy. But that, that'll be a theme of this talk, so I won't labour on it now. I'll start with Seattle. Now, Seattle is America's fastest growing city. Um, it increased in population by 17% from 2010, and that has created, as you can imagine, a huge amount of pressure on their road network. This is a bit of a timeline. So when the new mayor came to sort of power in Seattle um, in 2018, she announced that she thought congestion pricing was the way they were going to be able to tackle congestion in that city. She asked the Seattle Department of Transportation to put together some reports and um, work and to um, inform her of um, different models and options available. In May last year, they released their phase one study. Lots of phases in government. I know I'm from government, but they released phase one, and that covered three things. They looked at international examples of congestion pricing models. They set their objectives, um, and there were four of them, and pinned that, because I'm going to come back to that later, because that's very important. And they used those objectives to create a short list of different models. They whittled it down from a list of 11 to a list of four. And those four models are going to inform their next research phase, and then they will make a recommendation to the mayor, and it will likely go to public vote, although you'll note there's no time frame there, because I don't know it. What Uber thought could be a helpful addition to this policy debate was if we were to propose a congestion model that we think aligned with um, their objectives and use our data to show what it could look like in practice. So these are the four criteria that the Seattle Department of Transportation, that's that acronym there, came up with. They wanted to choose a model that would be equitable, have positive climate and health outcomes, reduce congestion, um, and then be feasible to implement. So what we did is we took our data of speeds analysis in the Seattle downtown area, and you can see that on the left. And that is at 5 p.m., less than 75% of free flow speeds come up red. And so you can really see where the congestion is centred. We use that data to inform what we thought would be a good and a sensible congestion kind of cordon charge. And we picked congestion cordon charging because we thought that was the model that aligned best with those four objectives from the department. Our proposal is, I think, a little bit harsher than Marion's because we want to, we suggested just price people most times of the day, but it ranged between zero and $3.80 um, and it fluctuates depending on which time different people entered the cordon area. Equity was one of the big concerns. Um, it, it is the big concern in the community, and it was something that the department's first report dealt a lot with, and so we wanted to deal with it as well in our research. Um, and we found that 
high-income households do pay the most for the road tolls, which is a good outcome. But we also, in our research, proposed, well, what a package of um, sort of equity concessions could look like, rebates and things like that, for the government's consideration. So what happened? So our model, if you were to do that, we found there was a 30% decrease in road travel times in the AM and PM commute. Interestingly, you'd have a 4% increase in bus transit trips, which is a good thing, more people using public transport. It would raise $130 million in annual revenue and have an economic impact of 90. We costed that package I mentioned on the, the equity sort of concessions, um, costed to be about $50 million a year. So that's something to think about as well. And so now I'll quickly talk about New York. Um, New York has a very long history of congestion pricing debate, and um, I think you could write many, many books on it. So this is a very simple summary that I've tried to do for you. Um, but in 2007, I'll talk you through the main events as I see them. 2007, Mayor Bloomberg proposed a congestion pricing scheme um, with the sort of the primary objective of um, environmental outcomes. That didn't receive support from the state, and in New York you need the state government to also um, be wanting to do it, and so that eventually died away. In 2017, 10 years later, the opposite thing happened, where the state government proposed um, a congestion pricing scheme. Their objectives were slightly different. They wanted to reduce congestion in Manhattan um, and improve the streets, but they also wanted to address what they called the subway, the New York subway state of emergency, because that subway has received chronic underfunding for years and has a huge maintenance backlog, um, and they've estimated it's up to sort of $15 billion. And so they were the two sort of objectives of that charge. It got mayoral support the following year and then a campaign was run. And this is sort of how Uber got involved in the New York thing. We were part of that campaign. We spent probably over $2 million. Um, we gave money to sort of lobbying and advocacy groups and we also funded some ads as part of the Fix Our Transit Coalition, which included groups like the Environmental Defence Fund. And if, if I'm on time, I'll, I'll play you one of the ads later. So here's, um, here's some pictures, though, of them as well. So what we did is we spoke to different sort of um, small businesses and community groups to sort of see what they thought about it. And many of them had positive stories and were supportive of congestion charging. And so we wanted to tell that story. And these are some of the things that were run. I think the thing about both the New York and Seattle case studies that really stand out for me is that I mean, for congestion charging to be successful, you need political will, and that's a given, and we saw how that didn't work in with Mayor Bloomberg in 2007. But I think you also need community support and buy-in, and to do that, you need to clearly articulate what this policy is going to achieve and be very clear about those directives. So I'll talk a little bit um, about the Australian context. Um, you're a room of policy nerds like me, and so I don't need to labour on it. Um, the Australian cities are under a lot of pressure. We have very high population growth. We're sitting in what will be our biggest um, city, and that's created huge amounts of pressure on our road and transport networks. And we know that we need to start doing things differently because the private car is still our dominant mode and we can't keep going on the trajectory we have. 
I've seen different congestion models wanting to do a few different things. Um, and I'll sort of go through each of these one by one. So if you want your congestion model to raise government funding, um, you would use something like a road user charge model. That is where vehicles are charged per kilometre based on the distance they drive. This is to sort of recoup the cost of the wear and tear on the road. I think the thing with this model is it's good at raising money, but something to be aware of is the equity issues around it. Um, people in outer urban areas, people in regional areas might not have access to transport alternatives. I think there are also um, environmental sustainability implications to be aware of, particularly if you're proposing a model, say, that um, decides to um, put that charge onto electric vehicles um, as a sort of low-hanging fruit to road user charging because they're not currently a large part of the Australian fleet. And there was one more. I might remember it later. Another one. So if environmental sustainability is your main um, concern, then a couple of European cities have low emission zones. And so they only charge vehicles to enter certain areas um, if they meet certain fuel standards. And if they don't meet those standards, they either charge them more or they don't let them. Um, I think this is obviously a good one to um, encourage people to move to greener and cleaner technology. Um, I think, though, the congestion benefits of this one in the long term are a little bit sketchy because we'll, we will all be forced to eventually move to electric vehicles. And so you're not going to get those long-term congestion benefits from a model like this. And I think if you want to sort of manage road congestion, then cordon charging, and the one that's discussed in the Grattan report, is what makes the most sense. Um, it's what is um, going to be used in New York. And I, re I remember the point I was wanting to make earlier, is that the problem with road user charging is that because it's kind of a blunt instrument, it discourages people from driving, but it doesn't necessarily improve efficiency. Sometimes road user charging models can have time of day and location charging, in which case that is a little bit better. But cordon charging is sort of much more geographically based, and so it um, is sort of more targeted at actually reducing congestion. However, like the other models, there are equity considerations to remember. And I think also one of the criticisms of London is... Um, that over time people sort of just become used to the charge and they factor it into their daily budget. And so you sort of got to set up a model that is flexible and adaptable. So each model has their positives and negatives and they do different things. Um, but I really sort of want to reinforce that I think the most important thing um, is that we have a clear policy objective because if we just get into a debate around models, it goes in circles. But I think what we need to do is say, what is the most important thing in our cities? What do we want to achieve? And then pick a model that aligns with that. And that is crucially important to getting community buy-in. Because at the end of the day, this is so politically challenging to do. Politicians are never going to do it unless the community want it. And so I'll finish just on one of the ads that we ran in New York. It just goes for a minute, so it's not too long. Thanks very much, Ashley. I look forward to such an ad in Melbourne. Um, 
you've provided some really interesting perspectives there, and I'm sure some grist for the mill for questions from the audience later. But first, to our other panel members. Our second speaker this evening is Lauren Walker. Lauren is a Principal Transport Consultant and Project Manager at Veach Lister Consulting. She's an experienced transport planner and strategic modeler. Her project experience ranges from strategic planning studies to demand forecasting for major transport projects, down to the examination of more localised transport demands and network performance. And I should say that Veach Lister's modelling was a compelling and really essential element of Grattan Institute's recent reports on congestion charging. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Lauren Walker. Thanks for the introduction, Paul, and um, I'm sorry that I have to follow up that excellent video. So now I'm going to move on to my somewhat drier slides, so I apologise to you in advance. Um, so as Paul mentioned, VLC supported uh, the Grattan Institute in developing their recommended congestion charging scheme um, using our strategic transport models of Melbourne, uh, which are known as Zenith. So today I'm going to talk to you a little bit about uh, travel decisions and transport models. But before I do that, I want you all to stop for a second and think about your trip here this evening. You're obviously here at State Library, but how did you get here? Did you walk? Did you drive? Did you get a train? Where did you come from? Did you come from home or did you come straight from work, from uni? Were you shopping? And where are you going after this? You know, how are you leaving? Now, for most of you, the trip you made to join us here tonight is just one in a whole series of trips you've made in going about your business today. Um, and for each one of those trips, you've had to make several decisions, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, about how to get from A to B, and in some cases, you know, the locations of A and B. Now, Melbourne's a city of nearly 5 million people, and most people uh, in the city will make at least a few trips a day. And that's a whole lot of really complex decision-making going on. So let's walk through how transport models are able to reflect some of these decisions um, and allow us to understand the complex nature of travel movements in a major city like Melbourne. So as we just established, there are multiple decisions you're probably making um, about how you go um, about your travel each day. And these decisions can be broadly classified uh, into four key questions. The first type of question relates to, well, why? You know, are you going to make a trip? And if so, why are you making it? What's the purpose of your trip? Are you going to work? Going to drop someone off somewhere? Uh, are you going shopping? Are you going to meet someone for coffee? Uh, is it a sort of non-negotiable or a really routine trip that you make every day, like work or school, or is it a recreational trip? The next question is where? So where are you going to go and what's your destination? Now, your ability to change the destination of your trip probably depends a little bit um, on the answer you gave to the first question. So for some trips, again, like school and work, um, the answer might be a little bit rigid. So, you know, in the very short term at least, you're probably not able to change where you work or where your children go to school, for example. Um, but for other trips, the destination you choose could range, um, could vary on a range of factors. Uh, if you're meeting a friend for a coffee, it could depend on where that friend lives or works. Um, it could depend on whether you have specific errands to make before or after that trip. If you're going shopping, your destination will probably depend on what you need to buy and the types of shops available in different places. The third type of question relates to when. 
So when are you going to make a trip and when should you leave? Now, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, again, the answer probably depends on the type of trip. Um, many of us have reasonably fixed hours around the arrival and departure times that we have for work or school, but for shopping or recreation, you might be able to modify your tra- at the time that you travel a little bit. So once you know the why, the where, the when, you can start thinking about, well, how. And you'll need to make a, a few different trade-offs around the mode and the route options available for your trip. So when it comes to choosing the mode of travel, the answer will depend on some of the factors that I've already described, as well as a few additional factors. For example, do you actually have access to a car? You know, if you don't, you're less likely to drive, although you may still travel as a passenger. How far away is your destination? If it's 20 kilometres away, you're probably pretty unlikely to walk, although some people may still choose to walk. Uh, Do you have a public transport stop at a reasonable distance from where you are starting your trip? And does that service take you to your destination? Or at least does it allow you to conveniently transfer to another service that will ultimately take you to your destination? How much parking is available at your destination? How expensive is it? Uh, And which mode is going to get you to your destination the fastest? So once you've resolved all of these things, you can start to plan the specifics of the route, drive, or which public transport service you're going to take to get from A to B. Now, you may not necessarily make all of these decisions in the order in which I've presented them, but at some point in planning uh, every trip every day, you'll probably answer these questions in, in at least some way. So how do transport models handle this complexity? Well, I should start off by saying that transport models are not perfect computerised simulations of what happens on the streets of Melbourne every day. Transport models predict, on average, the travel decisions people will make are likely to make under certain conditions. But for them to be able to do this, there's still a missing piece in the equation I've presented so far, and that's the question of who. We need to know something about the person making the travel decisions in order to predict how they will behave. So the characteristics of individuals and the households they live in have huge impacts on the types of travel that they do. Luckily for transport modelers, people with similar characteristics living in similar neighbourhoods with similar household compositions and access to similar number of uh, private motor vehicles tend to make fairly similar travel choices. And we know this because many state governments around the country um, conduct regular surveys where they ask people to keep a trip diary, uh, documenting the travel they undertake in a day or a week. These surveys help us to understand what personal and household characteristics are the most significant predictors of how someone will travel, as well as how they may respond to external uh, to changes in external variables to their trip, such as the, the cost that they're going to have to outlay or the travel time or possibly a court and charge. So let's talk a little bit now about how models actually work. So the Zenith model that we use to test the Grattan Institute's congestion charge proposal uses four key ingredients, which are quite standard of models of this this type. Um, The first ingredient is information about households and land uses. So in this case, we use information from the latest census, which was completed in 2016. And these are needed to answer the who and the where questions. So in the model, the cities are divided into small geographic units that we call travel zones, And each zone contains information about the average composition of households, which are the who, um, and the types of activities and land uses that might attract trips, which helps us to understand the where. So across the entire city, in each travel zone, we'll have a picture of how many people live there and how many dwellings there are, how many people are employed uh, and what kinds of jobs they do, uh, how many people are engaged in other activities, which includes school children, stay-at-home parents, retired people, uh, and what age group they fall into how many cars are owned by people in that travel zone, um, how many job opportunities are available in different industries, 
uh, and whether there are other facilities likely to attract trips, like you know, educational institutions, for example. The second ingredient is the transport network, which represents all the roads, public transport services and stops available for travel in, in 2016. So some more detailed micro-simulation models might um, include quite detailed um, information about traffic intersections and signal phases, um, but we're talking about a citywide model here, so we don't have that, quite that level of detail in this particular model. The third ingredient is the dollar cost applied to people using some parts of the transport network. So this will include things like public transport fares, road tolls, parking charges, and any kind of congestion charge would also fall into this category. Uh, the final ingredient is something that allows us to bring all of the above together, um, and that's household travel survey information. And this provides insight into how people and households with certain characteristics are likely to behave in different travel environments. And this allows us to de develop mathematical, mathematical relationships that give the model its predictive power. So once all these ingredients are present, the model is able to produce travel demands on a model transport network. And that gives us some more tra tangible information like traffic volumes on roads and passenger numbers on public transport services to help us to understand the transport task that's facing our city. So then we end up with a sort of a baseline model. And that's one that effectively represents the situation in Melbourne in the very recent past where there was no court in charge. So to make sure that the mathematical relationships in the model are robust um, and that all the other sort of ingredient information we've used to represent the city is reasonable, we'll normally check the, the travel demands that are simulated against other observed information. So, you know, traffic counts or public transport patronage numbers. Um, and this is just to make sure that the model is actually reasonably reflecting how Melbournians are travelling today. And then, this is the exciting part, we can start making changes to some of the model ingredients and use the model to, as a tool to understand how people might modify their behaviour under different sets of circumstances. And we can test a whole range of things, so adding a new road, adding new public transport infrastructure, increasing the number of residents in the city according to population projections, increasing the cost of tolls or public transport, and in this case, we introduced a couldn't charge around the CBD. So then the model can help us to start answering some questions about how travel dem demands might change with a cordon in place. So I don't want to steal too much from, uh, from Marion's sort of um, talk, but I'll mention a few key changes that we did observe. Um, in terms of why, well, that's not really going to change in the short term. In terms of where, the model suggested that slightly fewer people would travel to the CBD in response to a uh, cordon charge, just because it becomes a slightly less attractive destination for people to go to due to the higher cost. Uh, in terms of when, well, some people would probably move their travel time slightly er earlier or later um, as a result of the high costs associated with peak travel. And in terms of how, slightly fewer people would use their cars to get to the CBD and opt to use alternatives instead. For people making cross-city trips, fewer people use CBD roads to make these journeys and instead reroute to city bypasses. So I hope that gives you a bit of an overview as to how transport models work. Um, like any kind of model, doesn't matter what sort of... Um, area you're looking at, transit models definitely have some limitations, um, and a model is only as good as the people interpreting the significance of its results. Um, but having said that, when used appropriately, they can be a really useful tool to assist in developing evidence bases for policy making, and that's exactly how it's been used in this case by the Grant Institute. Um, so on that note, I'll finish up and pass you back to Paul. Thank you. Thanks, Lauren, for that fascinating insight into, among other things, the, the psychology of travel. 
I'm sure it will prompt plenty of questions during the Q&A session. But first to our third speaker, Marion Terrell. Marion is a colleague of mine at the Grattan Institute, where she runs our Transport and Cities program. Marion is a distinguished policy analyst with vast experience. She wrote parts of the 2010 Henry Tax Review, and she led the design and development of the MyGov account. At Grattan Institute, she established the transport program, and she's published on investment in transport infrastructure, cost overruns, value capture, discount rates, and on it goes. Most recently, and most relevantly, she's published not one but two reports on congestion. The first was called Why It's Time for Congestion Charging, Better Ways to Manage Busy Urban Roads. And the second was called Right Time, Right Place, Right Price, a practical plan for congestion charging in Sydney and Melbourne. Marion has something we all want. She has a plan to make this city work better. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Marion Terrell. So thanks, Paul, and thank you, everyone, for coming tonight. Um, I feel like we've got a great setup from the earlier two speakers. So um, what I'm going to talk to you about is the specifics of, of our proposal. It is very striking when you come into the Melbourne CBD just how much construction is underway, particularly the Metro Tunnel and the Westgate Tunnel. But around the city, we also see level crossing removals, um, and we have the prospect of the suburban rail loop and airport rail link. So this is a lot of construction, and that's always been our approach to dealing with population growth, build more stuff. From time to time, some people support another strategy, which is to limit or slow population growth to take pressure off Melbourne. So tonight's discussion is not about these two strategies to manage congestion, building more or slowing population growth. It is about this third way, congestion charging. So late last year, as Paul said, um, we published two reports on congestion charging. I'm delighted that one of my co-authors is here today, James Ha, for the curly questions, perhaps, James. What we did in those reports was we put forward this particular proposal for how the Victorian government could introduce congestion charging now. So let me take you through the proposal. First of all, um, so in summary, we propose in the near term a cordon charge around the CBD of Melbourne. And this slide shows you where we think it should go. So it's the CBD, South Bank and Docklands, and just taking in the Queen Victoria market. And the reason that we chose that, those boundaries is it's the smallest area that you can choose that is basically the skyscraper area, the area of intense economic development. We are trying to avoid community severance, avoid areas that might or might not be thought of as CBD. This is just the... the the tightest cordon that we thought you could draw. The numbers around the boundary, by the way, are the detection points that you would need um, because we proposed that the way that you would know if people were in the cordon is by using automatic number plate recognition cameras and that is where they would need to go. 
So the big question that the media wanted to know is how much would you charge? And so here is a schedule of the fees. Basically, what we proposed is that if you drive into the CBD in the morning peak, you would pay a charge of $5. And if you drove out in the afternoon peak, you would pay a further charge of $5. For the half hour or hour on either side of that, that peak, a, a shoulder charge of $3. And then at all the other times of the day, so in the middle of the day, at night, on the weekend, public holidays, no charge. Why did we just propose starting with the CBD? Uh, it, we, by no means were we suggesting that the CBD is the only place in Melbourne where there's congestion. It's very clear that, that there's congestion in many places um, for a variety of reasons. But we did start with the CBD for, for several reasons. And, oh, sorry. <laughs> um, so, first of all, looking at the first panel on this slide, there's a concentration of population in the CBD which is more, much more pronounced than in any other part of Melbourne. The second panel um, on this slide shows you, in addition, that there's a concentration of jobs in the CBD. So Melbourne CBD has got 15% of the city's jobs, and that is um, much bigger than the next largest suburb for jobs, which um, actually is Dandenong and has... 3.2%. So it's a, it is, even though there is um, employment dispersed all over Melbourne, there's certainly a concentration of jobs in the CBD. And the CBD also has a concentration of people driving to work, and they're coming from all over the city. And although I don't have a slide for this, um, the other thing about the CBD is it is the part of the city that is best connected by public transport. And that's why we see two-thirds of commuters coming to the CBD by public transport. So the question of would it work um, is really the heart of this proposal. And, and in particular, to go to Ashley's point about what do we mean by work, what is our objective? Our objective is to reduce congestion. And on that objective, the answer is yes, this would work. So this, this map shows you some of the detail about this. What's striking, I think, about this map is if you look at the inset of the CBD itself, you can see the green, as in speed improvements or speed increases compared to now, are very clear in the CBD area within the cordon, as you would expect. But you can also see around the CBD, there are some roads where the, there is a speed decrease, particularly boundary kind of roads, but there's a lot of roads outside the cordon where there are also speed increases. So the speed increases in the HODL grid in the morning peak would be of about 16% on average. And the number of, car, or the, the number of cars uh, entering the CBD in the morning peak would be reduced by approximately 40%. So across Melbourne as a whole, this proposal would take around 5,000 cars off the road in the morning and afternoon peaks. But the thing to me that is most striking about this and most surprising really is how far out the effects ripple. You remember I showed you how tightly drawn this cordon was, but you can see that there's these speed increases right across the city in, from Mulgrave to Nidri, 
and from Faulkner to Hampton to Altona, right across the city. They're not huge speed increases, but the effects are rippling out and affecting the city as a whole. So this is really the benefit. This is how the modelling has really helped us to understand better what the impacts of this scheme would be. The final point that I wanted to make, just describing to you what our proposal was in brief terms, is about fairness. People often express concern that congestion charging would hurt lower income people and stop them from getting where they need to go, particularly if they live in distant outer suburbs that might be poorly served by public transport. And we were very concerned about this, because, partly because... Um, Community acceptance requires that it's not unduly unfair, but it just wouldn't be effective uh, if that was the case. But, in fact, our analysis showed quite the opposite. This slide shows who is really driving to the CBD for work. So let me explain to you what, what this slide shows you. First of all, um, the, one th the most striking thing, I think, is that drivers to the CBD are overwhelmingly higher income workers. So the top two lines, so that's a, um, the lines are ranked by income and the top two lines are the highest income groups um, who are commuting to the CBD and they are predominantly the ones who are driving. In fact, full-time workers who drive to the CBD, CBD earn a median income of $2,000 a week and that is $650 a week more than the median full-time worker across Melbourne as a whole. So it's a much higher income person who's driving to work in the CBD. The other thing that I think is dramatic about this slide is just looking um, on the horizontal axis, you can see how far people are travelling when they, when they drive to work. And what that is showing you is that um, a lot, most people are coming from inner and middle suburbs. They're just not travelling that far. These inner and middle suburbs, of course, are the ones that tend to be better served with public transport. Some further analysis that we carried out showed that people who drive to work in the CBD tend to come from higher income suburbs. For example, you get a higher proportion of people driving to work in the city from Brighton and Malvern than you do from Broadmeadows or Werribee. And not only that, but from every suburb, the people who drive to work in the CBD tend to be better off than their neighbours in that suburb. So someone from Caulfield who drives to their CBD job is typically better off than their neighbour in Caulfield. The same goes for people in Footscray. The same goes, in fact, for every part of Melbourne without exception. So in summary, people who drive to work in the CBD are a particularly advantaged group of people. And this set of findings was a really important part of the reason why we recommended a CBD cordon. The issues of fairness and equity are much less problematic in, for this kind of model than they are for more comprehensive schemes for congestion charging across the city as a whole. Having said that, in the medium term, we do recommend adding to the cordon uh, with per kilometre charges on the most congested urban freeways and arterial roads. And longer term, we do see merit in pursuing distance-based charges that vary with 
time of day, location and vehicle size. And I would anticipate that they would be matched by reducing or abolishing other road-related taxes and charges. So to sum up, Grattan is re recommending a CBD coin charge around the centre of Melbourne of about $5 to enter and $5 to leave in the morning and afternoon peaks uh, with shoulder charges on either side. This design targets a key hotspot of congestion and would have repercussions throughout the network. My final slide is just a reminder that this scheme would not affect most people directly. Most people don't drive to work in the CBD today. Most people don't even work in the CBD. In fact, only about 3% of households um, would be affected based on what people are doing today. So I understand that this is a very hard reform, it's a controversial reform, but it does seem that the status quo is becoming less acceptable to people. If that's true, here's a better system. Thank you. Thanks, Marianne. Well, ladies and gentlemen, as you can see, we have here three experts who've put their minds to how to tackle congestion in this town, how to make Melbourne work better. And they're now available to take your questions. But before I throw over to our audience, can I ask a quick question of each of you, perhaps starting with you, Lauren? Um, you model lots of projects, including big infrastructure projects. What can you tell us about how effective congestion charging would be in Melbourne compared to building a whole lot more great big expensive roads? Um, I think that's a really interesting question, Paul. Thank you. Um, now, from memory, I think the cordon charge um, that uh, was implemented resulted in a network-wide um, improvement in, average, in travel speeds of about 1%. Which yes. is pretty significant considering, you know, as Marion um, illustrated, it's, it's very small sort of um, spatial area that the cordon's covering. Um, and from my experience, you know, other like quite significant infrastructure projects um, sort of typically result in an improvement network-wide about between 1% and 3% um, in average travel speed. So it's actually a fairly comparable um, benefit in, in many ways. Um, but I think the, the, the big question for me is, you know, or the big point that I'd like to make is I, I don't necessarily think it should be a, a sort of an either-or type mm -hmm. approach. It's got to be you know, acknowledging that there's some complementarity between these different types of interventions that we can, we can use to try and make our cities run better. And Ashley, can I ask you from your experience, um, do you have a sense of which sectors would, might get behind congestion charging in Melbourne and perhaps more importantly which sectors and parts of the industry would be loudest in their opposition? Yeah, I really think it depends on what the proposal is, if it's so congestion charging in Melbourne. Well, Uber, of course, would be a, a big supporter. Indeed. So they got one. Um, but I think um, there are proven environmental benefits of congestion charging, so I imagine those groups. Um, I think businesses also, um, big and small, um, see the benefit in a more productive city. And so, I mean, I think the challenge with congestion charging is that most people, when they understand it and, and they know it 
and there they accept it. Like it is the smart, logical thing to do. It is just so politically challenging. And so I think the big thing that we need to overcome is how we get the community to accept congestion charging, which we have to pick an objective that aligns with their values. Well, let me ask each of you, how do we get public opinion and perhaps more importantly political opinion on side for a congestion charge, Marion? So my experience with uh, publishing these two reports has been quite instructive. So when I, I, as I've talked about congestion charging in recent years, um, the, what I've found is the media is very interested and politicians say, no, forget it, and it dies. But this time was different. Uh, after we published, we published these two reports one week apart, and after the first, with the first report on the Monday, the Premier said, no, we're not doing that, and the Minister for Transport said, we're not doing that. And that happened here in Melbourne and it happened in Sydney. And the media continued to be interested and the public debate continued. And, it was, and that went on really longer than, um, than is normal for these sort of things, and I feel like the interest remains quite high. And it, my sense of this is that there is a greater interest in this topic than there has been. I don't see, get any sense that politicians are going to lead on this one. I might be wrong, but it does seem to me that there is a greater acceptance amongst a greater diversity of, of uh, interests and, and that perhaps is the beginning of, of an opportunity for change. Ashley, have you got any similar optimism? Is it going to be politically possible? I, I think things need to get a bit worse, to be honest, before it is politically possible, which is a bit sad. Um, but I do think that's the case. One of the things that I thought was interesting about New York and how they sort of really clearly articulated, look, you want your subways to run, we, we need this money to invest in them. If you, if we do this court and judge, we'll invest it back into your subways. It was a very clear link. It reminded me of the Poles and Wires sale in New South Wales where the government very clearly said... We sell your assets, we promise we'll spend it on these things. And I think that could be something that we could potentially explore here. Lauren, do things have to get a lot worse or even worse? Are we flogging a dead horse here? Um, I think there's sort of a general acknowledgement um, amongst the public that you know, the status quo can't really continue um, as it has up until now. And I think that, um, you know, Marion mentioned a really important point, which is, you know, that maybe maybe this is something that the public sort of have to lead on or the, and the politicians sort of follow. And I think that actually tends to be the way that when there is a significant change, that is sort of the order in which things happen. So um, I'm sort of going to take the optimistic view that maybe we have hit rock bottom. I don't think we actually have, but maybe we are at the point where people acknowledge something does need to change and there will be enough public appetite to sort of invest, seriously investigate something so like that. So it seems as though the public need to lead the way here. We have some members of the public here today, and I wonder if I could just ask for a quick show of hands on a couple of questions. Who in the audience thinks congestion is a problem in Melbourne? Who thinks congestion has been getting worse over, say, the last seven years since Anna arrived and started clogging up our roads? And here's the hard one. Who thinks a congestion charge is a good answer? Policy. And who doesn't? Fascinating, fascinating. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to ask us 
and to persuade you if you're not yet persuaded. Um, I'm going to open up to your questions. If you'd like to ask a question, then now's your chance. Please raise your hand, and if you get the call, please wait for a microphone to get to you. And could I ask, please, that you be as brief as possible? We're looking for questions rather than statements. And the first question is the lady in the second row down here. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to ask why you set the um, fee so low. It's actually less than public transport for all those poor people travelling into the city. Um, it's the people getting $3,000 a week are not going to care about paying 3 or $5 a day. Mary and I reckon that's for you. Why <laughs> only 5 bucks in and 5 bucks out? Yeah, so this is a... It, it's a... Um, a very difficult question and it's one that we agonised over quite a lot and in the end we thought it should be approximately the level of public transport. I think um, it ma it's better to undercharge than overcharge but in the end getting the charge perfect is not critical. If you think of who is the most flexible person willing to ch take their trip at a different time, the a small charge may well do it because the other option is just as good for them or almost so it is hard to get this perfect. In real life, what I would like to do is to have a government who was willing to say, OK, we're going to start at $5, we're going to see what happens, we're going to ask you if you think that it's made enough of an impact and, and we might adjust it up or down a bit. But um, it, it is difficult to get this right. In terms of, of thinking about the, the people in, um, who drive who are very wealthy... And, and might not care about a $5 charge. So clearly some people are in that category and that will always be the case no matter where you pitch the charge, actually. But I, I think Lauren's, um, Lauren's point is... Uh, Lauren's insight about how we make these decisions is also really important, that we decide every day the detail of our trip. Um, and one of the things that's been interesting is in the US um, they have told express lanes... Um, in some states, and one example is on the interstates 495 and 95 in Washington, D.C. Those, the, um, more than half of drivers have at some time used the charge lane, even though only 5% do so on a daily basis. Sometimes we are just in a hurry and, and we're willing to pay rather than queue up with our time. Thanks, Marion. I'm going to go to the lady at the front here. And then I will come to the back of the room as well. Hi. I've got a question for Ashley from Uber. Um, given we're talking about congestion, another one of Uber's proposals for Melbourne is Uber Air, which is a helicopter commuting service. And I know that Uber's talked about this as being a solution for congestion. Um, but I'm just wondering how that works, given that you can only get four people in a helicopter... Um, and are we simply lifting the problem from the ground up to the air? Or, you know, given induced demand, maybe we'll just spread it and it will expand to cover both. Ashley, very briefly, what's Uber Air and is it part of the answer? Uber Air is um, a product that where it's electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicles, eVTOL. It's a very new technology um, that a number of um, uh, manufacturers are investing in. 
Um, and we just earlier this year signed a partnership with Hyundai to, to invest in the technology. But I, a couple of things I'd say is that it's a very long way away. Um, the technology is still very new, and so I do think we need to look at other solutions um, to address congestion in, in the short term. And when I say it's a long... Well, the pilot, pilot test flights will begin from 2020, um, but then commercial operations won't begin to at least the mid-2020s. Um, and then, like, to get a scale where it will have an actual impact on congestion is a long way away. OK, so it looks as though helicopters are not part of the answer in the short term, at least. No, I don't think <laughs> Any so. further questions, please? The gentleman three rows back here. Thank you. The uh, traffic consists of largely of vehicles with one occupant uh, coming in and out. A two-ton vehicle, X litres per hour, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Surely that approach, you know, occupancy is a more important and in some ways a more honest and relevant one. Good question. Lauren, why the heck do we all drive around one person per car, and what are you going to do about it? Um, I mean, I think that, um, so to answer the first part of that question, why we all drive around with, um, with one car, um, I think in part that's because we sort of lead sort of, you know, busy lives where we sort of string lots of different trips and errands and things together, um, and that kind of makes it quite challenging, you know, from, for households and things to make sure that they can coordinate their schedules and be able to... Um, you know, to to move more than one person in a vehicle, and so maybe something. Um, I, I definitely agree that something that is worth considering is how we can encourage more people to do things like carpool. So if I could add to that, I, I think congestion charging is absolutely a way to do that. So on some trips, people can combine with others. On some, they probably can't. But if you are taking into account that your vehicle is contributing to congestion then you'll want to minimise the cost. And one of the ways you can do that is by having two people band together or three people band together um, in one vehicle. And so it is an encouragement to do that where it's practical for people to do it. I want to go to the back of the room. Hands up in the dark back there. There's a gentleman up the back three rows in. Thank you. Um, I was wondering if anyone remembers the Sydney Olympics and the traffic congestion before and then during and then what was the common complaint then I'm busy what's the breakdown well I've got four meetings today it's going to take me the whole day whereas Melbourne it was seven or eight meetings but now we're at the full meeting mark and we've got a full day have you looked at rotating number plates where even in Paris and other cities when it's high pollution they put a ban on um which cars with which number plates and then putting the congestion charge on that because this seems to be, uh, from what I've heard today, very simplistic but not the solution to addressing behavioural change but just taxing and getting uh, revenue to address a cause for an outcome but not the solution. Marion, can I come to you first on that? Any lessons from the Sydney Olympics and rotating number plates, odds and evens? Um, well, perhaps if I could answer the second one of those, which I've probably better placed to. Um, so there are a lot of cities around the world that do do odds and evens. And what, what that essentially means is if your number plate ends in an odd number, you can drive on particular days and not on others. So no matter if you're 
racing to hospital, no matter if you've got a job interview, you can't drive on that day. Unless you're wealthy enough to buy a second car, of course, which is one of the solutions that people adopt. So it, it does strike me as a um, sort of a, a solution that is not very responsive to the reality that people know best what their own travel needs are. Whereas uh, the, the beauty of pricing really is that you don't prohibit any particular trip, but you do encourage people to take into account the fact that they are contributing to slowing everybody else down. So my counter-suggestion to that is if you were to have your congestion charging, then you tax those that have to do those uh, trips. And it's just... I'm thinking if you've lived in megacities and had families, you know how best practice works. And in places like Hong Kong, you're not allowed trucks in the city from a certain hour. You'd love to see it here in Australia for many parts, but there's that behavioural change of, I think the one I've heard over the last 10 years is, you know, why do I have to be, uh, don't want to be condescending, but, you know, why do I have to be working midnight hour shifts when I'm entitled to work during the day? But the reality is the economies, the population, the transport, the space... We've got to control who comes in when and that flow and the type of transport, not just price because people want to come in. Lauren, can I, Lauren, can I put that to you? you, you you've done the modelling. Does the Grattan proposal change our behaviour? Um, well, I mean, I think I you know, mentioned a little bit earlier that some of the key changes that the, um, that the, the Grattan proposal was likely to um, causing people's behaviour. But just on your point, I think, um, about some of these, the sort of the, the number plate um, options and some more sort of hardline congestion um, charging approaches, um, I think something that's definitely come out of the discussion we've had earlier um, and also just the work that Marion and the team have done is that the sort of getting the, the buy-in and the, the sort of um, political appetite to make these kinds of changes is um, is really quite important and making sure that we can bring the public on board is going to be really key. So having a sort of... Um, I don't think that um, any of us here will say that at no point ever will we have to look at those kinds of solutions. I don't think we're there yet in terms of what the city needs and I think that having something like a cordon charge is going to... It's going to elicit enough of a change in behaviour to have a real impact that people will start to see the benefits um, but without sort of being a really difficult um, thing to implement. Okay, I want to go up to the back right in the dark there and the gentleman right on the aisle, please. Thank you. Hi, uh, my question is directed to Marion and I was wondering if you have any proposals to um, combat your model where the perimeter roads of the cordon seem to slow traffic down. So were there any models have been developed to, to combat that issue? Yeah, aren't they banking up on the perimeter roads? Now? Yeah, it's true. So I think wherever you draw a cordon, then you get a bit of a boundary effect, and I think that that's been evident in other cities. So it is quite problematic. I think on the ground there probably are things that you can do. For example, you could have um, you could uh, adapt the parking charges near to the boundary, so to essentially give a smooth boundary um, over a space, but it is a bit of a tricky thing. I think, I, I, I guess, um, when we've talked to the roads agencies about this particular effect, um, people do come up with quite a few ideas about, oh, there's an awkward intersection there, but, it, you know, that could be fixed. 
So there's quite a there's, there are those local types of solutions as well to try to soften them, but I think you probably can't altogether eliminate a boundary effect when you draw a boundary. More questions? These are good. These are good. Gentleman on the aisle down here, please. Uh, thank you. My name's Alan Rees. Just a question um, in terms of looking at this. Have you looked, I mean, obviously you looked at other cities. My, my question is you take people off the road, but then the issue is going to be public transportation and capacity. I live in Essendon and, and I'm like you. I run my errands on the weekend and I'm the only person in the car. But I'm thinking that this, this issue is have you looked at what the Singapore model is like because they charge different rates at different times in terms of their cordon and and in terms of the actual directing that funding from a public policy issue, is it really do you need to look at both this transportation and combining with public transportation and try and solve two problems? Marion? Yes, I think um, that they are... It is an integrated system, so you're absolutely right. I think what we... Um, a couple of comments I'd make. Um, one of the... I, my feeling about this is that there's an enormous level of investment in this city, in new public transport underway before our very eyes. And that, and politicians will often say, you know, congestion charging, it's all very well, but you've got to get public transport right first. I think it's hard to get public transport really right, but this is a, there's never been a better time from the point of view of the level of investment in public transport. So I do think that does create a bit of an opportunity that um, the government is in that sense, sort of keeping faith with the community about doing the public transport aspect of it and providing alternatives for a lot of people so that they, this choice is uh, an easier one to make. I want to come over to this side if there's any further questions on this side. Gentleman right down the front here had an easy advantage because he was in my eye. Thank you. Uh, Dion from Struber. Um, one question, if politicians and the community are really the key to unlocking a, a good thing, around change, um, are we starting uh, creating a problem by having a negative term like congestion charge? Australians struggle with tolls, levies, GSD. You can, can grab it. Could it be something like congestion um, gift or congestion something or other? <laughs> Just so that we can help the politicians have the, the moxie to make a decision that they're not you know, taxing everyone. Around Perhaps this. we could call it free travel. Yeah. yeah. Ashley, what do you think? Is there any um, evidence or lessons from overseas about what you call this thing? <laughs> um, I've seen it called a decongestion charge um, for that very reason. I take um, a tablet for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I think you, you make a good point. Uh, public perception is everything and maybe we haven't got the branding right yet. But uh, I don't have much more than decongestion charge. I'm sorry, I'm not the creative person. Lauren, you're creative. Help us I, out. I was going to suggest anything with the word busting in it, some kind of congestion busting charge would probably uh, go down quite well. Marion, this was a discussion in our office, actually, wasn't it? Why, why are we calling it a congestion charge? Uh, well, we considered many options, including decongestion de charge, and in the end we thought, no, tell it like it is. We tell it like it is at Grattan. I have a question myself, actually, which I'd like to um, ask each of you, really, and it bugs me. Um, and it relates to fairness, which many of you have mentioned tonight, and Marion, you've emphasised it. And I've heard all that you've said, and I understand that it's overwhelmingly the better off who commute to the city in the peak hour. But what about 
this perspective, Marion, wouldn't congestion charging make their life easier by making their daily commute less congested and make the lives of the rest of us a bit more irritating as we're forced onto already overcrowded public transport? Um, yeah, so people have thought, uh, have raised this a lot because um, clearly that um, some people will not care about the charge and will keep driving. I, I would go back to Lauren's um, fundamental observation that people make these choices. Not, I don't decide today what I'm going to do every day for 10 years. I decide today for today and tomorrow for tomorrow. It's, um, and over time, we, we change not just what time we leave, but we can make bigger changes over the, with the passage of time. So, some, so I suppose... Um, what a congestion charge does is it does not prohibit any particular trip. So it is not like um, a, a law forbidding you from doing something. If it's important to you, then you can make it a priority today. But it doesn't mean that you're up for paying $5 in, $5 eight, uh, out Monday to Friday every day of the year. Um, and the other point I would make is, you know, some, as I mentioned, um, what we've, the evidence we've got from the US about these tolled expressways is that people make judgments that vary day by day according to how important it is to them to be there on that day or whether they can be flexible. I think a, a, a device that allows the most flexible people, the people who are least committed to going at that time, it, a device that encourages those to be the ones who change seems to me to be a better way than the government deciding who should go or, as we do today, which is we all pay with our time. Mm -hmm. Ashley, what's your perspective on this fairness question? Yeah, I, I think, and I mentioned it in my presentation, overseas governments are considering how you have kind of equity packages um, so that you give rebates to people who can sort of prove that they... Um, are unfairly, um, you know, put in an unfair position by something like a congestion pricing scheme. Mm -hmm. um, Marion's report speaks about this and there are, there are drawbacks of that. You start making exceptions and you do have to draw the line somewhere and where is that line? Um, so I, I think that there are things you can do, um, but no model is perfect and no in no model is every single person going to be happy. There are going to be winners and losers and that's part of the public policy process. Lauren, is it, is it a danger, though, that we're sort of freeing up the, the nice roads for the rich and we're pushing everyone else onto trains and trams? Well, I guess, um, I mean, look, I, I agree with everything that Marion and Ashley have just said, um, but I also just want to sort of counter with this idea that, um, you know, people would always rather drive than take public transport mm -hmm. because I, you know, um, can speak from um, personal experience. I much prefer to get public transport um, than to drive when it's a good quality service that's going to take me, you know, from A to B. Who I get else? to read my book. So it's not necessarily – maybe it's presenting people with an opportunity to try something different and actually find out that they like it. So mm. Fantastic. I've got time for a couple more questions. The gentleman right at the front here is also in my eye line. Thank you. I think that perhaps a bigger problem, and that is that um, uh, Melbourne's just too big. And um, we need to concentrate more on decentralisation um, and something like the universal basic income. Uh, Marion, should we be 
pushing people out of the overcrowded city and revitalising the regions. So I, I feel like this is an opportunity for me to plug my next report, which will be about this topic. Um, but, but I would say, so Melbourne's 5 million. The world is full of cities much larger than 5 million and people flock to them and love them. So I don't think that there's any sense in which it's too big. But I do think that, that a vibrant city is one where people can get around without too much aggravation. I'm going to be greedy and sneak in a final question myself. I'm sorry, we're almost out of time. I want to briefly ask each of the three panel members this. I want you to look into the future for us. Let's imagine we reconvene this discussion. Same place, same panel, but it's 10 years' time. What sort of Melbourne will we be talking about in 10 years? Will it have congestion charging? And will we all be able to get around the city more easily? Lauren... That's an easy one to finish, so you first. Yeah, look, I, I would like to think that, yes, we will have a congestion charge in place. And I think um, I would also like to think that maybe congestion will be slightly reduced or at the very least will have stabilised because I think that's one of the key, you know, sort of keeping in mind, you know, what is actually achievable. We are going, the city is going to continue growing if we can sort of at least sort of keep congestion sort of stabilised and that's actually a really excellent outcome. Ashley, Melbourne in 10 years' time, what does it look like? I must confess, I'm not a local, so <laughs> uh, I probably can't go into too much detail, but you'll have your new metro open by then. Um, I don't know. Will you have a train to the airport? Maybe. I don't, I don't, not by then. I don't know about that outer suburban rail loop. Um, Give us I, another 50 years. <laughs> yes. Um, but I, I do hope there is some sort of congestion pricing scheme in place in Melbourne. Um, but by that time, I'm, I'm trying to think what the population will be by then. Be well Bigger than Sydney within 10 years, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. There'll be lots of us. Mm. Um, so, yes, I do hope you have um, adequate public transport, adequate um, congestion charging, and also a range of other modes like e-bikes and e-scooters and micromobility and a range that means you can all leave your private car at home or do away with it altogether. That's and Marianne, my vision and hope for you. Marion, you get the last word. How will this city be different and hopefully even better in 10 years' time? Well, what I don't want is a ghost city and I don't want a concrete jungle and I don't want gridlock and I don't want a series of disconnected villages. Congestion charging is really just a means to an end and that the end that I want is a vibrant place where people want to live and work and visit. Thank you, Marion. Thank you, Lauren, and thank you, Ashley. Ladies and gentlemen, just before we finish, thank you. Could I please say a few very quick thank yous? I want to thank Anna and the staff of the State Library I've said before that the State Library is one of the things that makes Melbourne such a great city of the world and it really is a privilege for us at Grattan Institute to have such a close relationship and partnership with the State Library, so thank you. I want to thank Andrew MacDonald and Beatrice Ringrose from Grattan Institute. Beatrice is our events guru at Grattan and she did a lot of hard work to make this event happen, so thank you, Beatrice. And thank you to you, our audience. Thank you for your interest, 
your engagement and especially for your questions. They were terrific questions tonight. Thank you. Please keep in touch with the Grattan Institute via our website and please keep a lookout for future policy pitch events here at the State Library. And finally, ladies and gentlemen, would you please join me in thanking the stars of tonight's show, Marion Terrell, Lauren Walker and Ashley Cormack. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate.